welcome to That's So Chronic with me, Jess Bryan. If you're new around here, on the final Tuesday of every month, we take a break from the regular patient interviews to share a That's So dot 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 episode. It's a chance to break down a piece of content that's in our That's So Chronic world. Like a book, a film, a podcast, literally anything and everything. And today we're discussing Dr. Paul Beegler's latest book, Why Does It Still Hurt? Yay, welcome back to the first That's So episode of 2023. It's no secret that I absolutely love creating these episodes, so I'm really excited to be back. Full disclosure before we begin, thought I'd let you know that my copy of Why Does It Still Hurt was kindly gifted by Scribe Publishing, so a big thanks to them for helping make this episode happen. So, why does it still hurt? The blurb starts by asking a question. Chronic pain is the single biggest cause of human suffering, yet pain that persists for three months or more is often unrelated to any physical injury. So, why does it still hurt? And that's a good question. Throughout the book, Paul begins to unpack the reasonings behind why it might still be hurting, using his own chronic pain journey as an example, as well as other patients' stories and interviews with some of the top pain researchers, scientists and doctors in the world. And the theories behind why it might still hurt, I personally found fascinating. And after a couple of chapters in, I was like, I've got to talk to Paul and I've got to share this with the That's So Chronic listeners. So here we are. We talk in this episode about Paul's process of creating the book, some examples of the studies and why he made the transition from emergency medicine to journalism. I'd really love to know your thoughts about all of this. So after listening to the episode or reading the book, feel free to send me a message over on Instagram. I'm at That's So Chronic. All right, here's the interview. I must say, I loved reading your bio on your website and learning all about the things that you do or have done. I was reading that you are a health and science journalist, you are an academic, you have a PhD in bioethics, you are a former specialist physician in emergency medicine, and now you are the author of a new book titled Why Does It Still Hurt?, it's quite the bio, so I'm very excited to be chatting to you today. Yeah, well, there's there's a few things that I've done, but I think uh, the science journalism has been perhaps one of the most interesting and challenging. So it was, it was a real journey writing the book, uh, Why Does It Still Hurt? Yeah, so the book, it is titled, like I said, Why Does It Still Hurt? How the Power of Knowledge Can Overcome Chronic Pain. The book is essentially you investigating the... I guess, the source of chronic pain, as well as some of the research and the therapies that go alongside this, as well as sharing patient stories and your own story of chronic pain. I'm wondering, when did you get this idea? When did you think, oh, I think there's a book in this? Yeah, well, I've had my own relatively minor uh, situations of of chronic pain. I I had a knee injury about 11 or 12 years ago after I was... uh, doing some bike racing, some road bike racing, uh, and developed uh, something called patellofemoral pain syndrome in my left knee. You know, put up with this pain for months and months, uh, eventually saw a sports and exercise physician, 
and he addressed some of my concerns. And I was thinking, well, I've still got this pain. There must be something still wrong with the knee. Yeah. Do I need injections into it? Do I potentially need surgery? What are we going to do about this? And, you know, he said, Paul, have you, have you heard about something called maladaptive neuroplasticity? And I hadn't. And he explained to me that when you've got a persistent painful stimulus uh, from anywhere in the body and it lasts longer than about three months and, and therefore officially you've got persistent or chronic pain, that can result in so-called neuroplastic changes in the sensory nerve pathways. So, for example, for, for me with the knee, the fact that I'd had ongoing painful in, input from this area just above my kneecap really meant that the sensing nerves had become amped up. They were overemphasizing the pain signals. And, and what that meant was that I would be developing a, an excessively strong painful reaction to more minor painful stimuli, and sometimes even stimuli that weren't legitimately pain producing, yeah. <laughs> wind on my knee when I was riding the bike, would actually become pain. And it was real pain, it really hurt. But the, the real revelation to me was that this pain was not necessarily originating from pathology or damage in my knee, but was now quite probably originating from the sensory nerve pathways, changes in my spinal cord uh, and changes in the brain. And this was quite fascinating because it actually led me to, to a different approach to, to dealing with that, that pain that, that involved a, a low and slow reintroduction of movement and exercise. But the, the next thing that happened, well, it wasn't quite the next thing, but you know, roughly 10 years later, I got another episode of pain, this time in my, my, my right knee, and a, a torn cartilage, the, the meniscus that's the shock-absorbing shock cartilage within the knee had been torn. It was proven on an MRI scan. And look, there seemed to be a fairly clear causal relationship between that tear and the pain that I was having. Yeah. And after you know, three or four months, I eventually actually went to, to see a surgeon who, who offered me uh, surgery to trim the tear which uh, he suggested would be something that would be beneficial for, for the discomfort. And look, I, I ended up waiting some time for the surgery and started looking through information about this injury and discovered that there were some studies that suggested that, well, maybe surgery isn't, isn't that great for it. And went back to the same sports and exercise physician and he said, well, well look, it could well be this <laughs> maladaptive neuroplasticity happening again and, and something called central sensitization, which describes the process that I've just talked about, you know, maybe that the torn meniscus isn't really the, the primary source of your discomfort anymore. Maybe it's that, that amped up sensitized nervous system and, and changes in the spinal cord and, and the brain that, that are causing this. And so I eventually didn't have the surgery and, and adopted uh, you know, non-surgical, non-drug-based measures primarily graded exposure to exercise to to improve things and I started kind of asking people this is in, in 2019 I started asking people I knew hey you got any chronic pain yourself or you know anyone oh yeah yeah I've had a bad back ever heard of central sensitization and maladaptive neuro, neuroplasticity and without fail my straw poll drew a response for, of no from everyone no one had yeah. ever heard of it I knew it had been discovered 40 years ago by by an amazing researcher called Clifford Wolf, who's now a professor of neurology at Harvard, and I, I talked talk to him at length in, in, in the book. And I thought, why doesn't anyone know about this? Because it's <laughs> so important. I mean, if you've got an injury and you've developed pain in your knee or your back or wherever, and it's now chronic, it's been going for more than three months, there's a good chance that the pain is no longer arising from that area and that, you know, if you've had appropriate screening 
procedures and, and, and tests and so on, and it's ruled out serious ongoing structural problems and injury, there's a good chance that the pain is now coming from a sensitised nervous system, central sensitisation. And it's really pivotal because the treatments probably should be directed at the sensitised nervous system, not at your knee or your back or your elbow or wherever that, that pain seems to be coming from. I mean, the pain is real. Yeah. <laughs> You, you might still be feeling it in the elbow or the knee or the back. It's real 100% pain, but it may no longer be indicative of damage in those areas. And that's when you were like, right, I've got to write a book and I've got to tell everybody about this. Well, I thought, you know, why don't people know about this? And I actually looked into Clifford Wolf, who discovered central sensitization in an amazing experiment that he did in 1983. And I thought, oh, this, this will have been written about in a book somewhere. And I, I did a search on Amazon and searched on the internet and it had been referred to. I mean, he's been cited you know, hundreds, thousands of times yeah. in, the, in the scientific literature, but no one had written about how he actually made this discovery in a book. And I thought, well, I'm going to do that. And yes. so I had a chat with him and he told me about this experiment and, and how he actually, you know, he was doing experiments in, in rats and, and he was uh, did it humanely by, it seems a bit, bizarre and counterintuitive, but he did it humanely by removing the top portion of their brain under anaesthetic so they couldn't feel pain. But he was able to detect whether they were responding to pain by if he pinched their, their toe on, the, on their hind paw, for example, they'd pull the, the hind paw back in, in something called a flexion withdrawal reflex, which is a really good sign that there is a painful stimulus being uh, registered by the sensory nervous system and it's in a, in a kind of reflex feedback loop from the spinal cord. And, and he basically found that the more he pinched the toe, the less painful stimulus he required to, 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 for that rat to pull the paw back. So if you pinched it over and over, all you, all you might have to do is actually brush the toe with a, with a paintbrush and not even on the toe. You could actually do it up on the leg or up on, on the rat's thigh. It would still pull the paw back. So what he'd found, and it was just a staggering discovery, that repeated painful stimuli were changing the sensory nervous system to become hypersensitive to any stimulus in the area itself, in, in the toe, in this case with the rat, and even stimuli that were well away from that. Yeah. And, you know, we've learned in the, in the subsequent four decades that people with persistent pain can develop something called allodynia, where I had it myself, where a, usually non-painful stimulus, like for me it was wind on my knee when I was riding the bike, could be felt as pain, and that's real pain. Yeah. Uh, really hurts. And you could get something called secondary hyperalgesia where the area of pain sensitivity, for me it was above the kneecap, could spread around to wider areas, you know, up the, at the lower end of the thigh or down to the leg or to the sides of the knee. It would spread consistent with what Clifford Wolf was finding in, in his rat studies. And, you know, since then, the, th the theories suggest that the reason why the body does this is a kind of, it's a bit like an overprotective parent. It, it's got this better safe than sorry philosophy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. the pain's been going for some months. There's something bad going on here. Let's really draw a big protective alarm fence around that area to make sure that that person doesn't do anything to make it worse. Yeah, And so the upshot that people can get into this cycle of what's termed fear avoidance, uh, you know, they fear generating the pain again 
And so they will avoid doing things like moving the area. I mean, I stopped yeah. when I got my home. I stopped riding the bike. I stopped running. I stopped swimming because all of those things seem to trigger the pain. And what we've now learned is that stopping moving is one of the worst things that you can do. And yeah. that really <laughs> is actually move low and slow, start off gradually. All of this under the care of a health practitioner that really knows the science behind persistent pain, the science of central sensitization, and some of the other mechanisms whereby the body can generate pain in chronic, in, in chronic pain in the absence of ongoing tissue injury because central sensitization isn't the only mechanism going on there. Speaking of all of the research uh, that has gone into all of this, I'm currently working towards my Bachelor of Health Science and epidemiology is definitely the bane of my life at the moment. <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. But what I found really fascinating when I was reading your book is that reading about the research and all of the studies was actually one of my favorite parts. And I know how overwhelming it can be when you're reading research reports and having to sift through all of the information. How did you even begin to piece this book together? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, I really just found my way into this. And what I would do is I, I'd uh, start researching the subject and then I'd find the people that really seem to be doing the most influential re research in that field. I'd look them up on Google Scholar and hopefully they had their own uh, Google account there. And then you can you can look at the citations that they've, they've had and you can look at the research that they've done in the last couple of years. And, and you know, I'd look at, I'd, I'd actually go through the first 30, 40, sometimes all of their studies, sometimes hundreds of studies, just looking at the title and see if that, that piqued my interest and we, we see if it was answering the questions that I wanted to know about. You know, for example, one of the questions was how does emotion fit into the whole pain scenario? Because we know that if you've got chronic pain, it's really absolutely understandable that you're going to feel very bad. You're going to feel anxious. You're going to feel sad. You might even feel depressed as a cause of the pain. But there's fascinating research that suggests that these negative emotions can actually cause pain. And so, you know, vis-a-vis -vis that issue, I was looking at the work of, of Vania Apkarian, and, and I found this paper from 2013 called Shapeshifting Pain. And that explained, uh, that in a beautiful way, this study was done, how, how that actually happens. And, you know, what he really found in this study was that he took people with a recent onset of lower back pain and he did brain scans on them and, and followed them up every three months with, with these brain scans while they were recording their levels of ongoing back pain with a special device that he'd actually invented. He's a bit of a bright guy, Vanya Akarin, uh, as are many of the, I can say, all of the researchers that we've looked at in this book. And what he found was that about half of the people, their pain got better over the course of the next 12 months. And initially, all of the people had brain changes in their sensory cortex, the area of the brain that senses any sensation. You know, whether you, if I press on my finger now and, and squeeze it, I will register that sensation in my sensory cortex. If I stick a pin into my finger and, and cause myself pain, it will also be registered in the sensory cortex and, and related brain regions. Um, so everyone was getting pain in the sensory cortex. And as I mentioned, about half, half the people, their back pain got better. And that 
activity on their, their functional brain scans, it just disappeared, it just went away. But the other half of people went on to develop persistent chronic back pain and mm. they continued to light up their brain scans. But the fascinating thing was that the activity was shifting from the sensory cortex to the emotional brain areas. So to the, to the amygdala, which registers fear, to the hippocampus, which is really important in, in sadness and depression, mm-hmm. uh, and to an area called the medial prefrontal cortex and its connections with the nucleus accumbens. And that's really important in reward centres. And so as briefly as I possibly can, what he was finding was that these negative emotions of fear and sadness were acting as a kind of negative filter of that person's mindset such that any sensation coming from the painful area, in this case the back, was being tagged with the threat that our negative emotions always tag things with. If we're feeling down or feeling anxious, something in, in the world is, is threatening to us. And so feeling down and feeling anxious about sensations coming from your back means that the brain tags those sensations with threat and it's more likely to turn them into pain. The other thing that he found was that he could actually predict who was going to get chronic pain. And this was fascinating. And these were people who had greater activity in their reward pathways. And, and you might say, well, look, you know, the reward pathways give you a dopamine surge and make you feel good when you've done something good at work or had some, some really nice chocolate. They're also implicated negatively when you get rewards from an addiction like alcohol, drugs or gambling. What could that possibly have to do with pain? Well, what he's found is that people with pain are subject to getting an excessive reward compared to other people who don't get chronic pain, an excessive reward from being pain-free. They really value being pain-free. They become hypervigilant for any signs of pain coming back, and they get a really strong reward when pain is not there. Why does that uh, make you predisposed to getting chronic pain? You become hypervigilant, and you are constantly checking for sensations and when you're checking for those sensations with this negative mindset, you're tagging them with threat and making pain. So that was his study. And look, I just thought, well, that's the study that's going to be in this book. And I want him to tell me the story of how he found that out. Because one, the, the finding is really relevant for people with chronic pain. But two, I can get him to tell me how he did that, how he came up with the ideas and how he ran the study. So we can get an insight into not just the life of the, the people that were subjects or participants in the experiment, but an insight into the life of, of the research of Vanya Atkarian and, and some of the, the team that, that was involved in that, because it always is a big team. There's lots of people uh, in that research team, even if it is led by, by a, a, an eminent researcher, Vanya yeah. Atkarian. I found that study so interesting, but I did have a favourite chapter in the book. It was Passengers on the Bus, Questions About Surgery, Paul, I was gasping when I was reading that chapter. I was writing notes as I was reading because I knew that I'd be able to talk to you about it. And I went back and I checked my notes and I literally wrote the tennis elbow story. Wow, I'm completely shook. <laughs> like I was just absolutely blown away. And I don't want to give too much away about what it's all about so that people can read the book and, and read for themselves because I'm sure they will want to. But the fact that someone who gets a placebo surgery was still reporting that they were getting better is just, it blows my mind. And I was wondering whether when you're researching all of this, 
if you are immune to this now or if this was also blowing your mind? It, it does. And, and I think that placebo surgery as a mechanism of evaluating the evidence for procedures that are primarily directed at relieving pain uh, are just so important. Yeah. And so, you know, as you mentioned, we, we looked at the tennis elbow. We also looked at uh, knee operations. And a lot of people aren't really aware that, that, that these kind of studies are happening. And so, you know, for example, in tennis elbow, uh, the, the placebo study mentioned, you know, what it really does, it, it gives people informed consent that we're doing a study. People with tennis elbow, there's a surgical procedure here, it happens to be called inertial procedure, which people will, will read about if, if they read the book. And it does a little operation on some tendons involved in tennis elbow, uh, which the surgeon that invented that thought might, might be a, a useful thing. And the surgeon actually found that it seemed to be useful because in a series of about 80 patients that got it, about 90% of those people got better. But the question you've got to ask yourself is, well, if you didn't do the surgery, how many people would get better? And you know, when someone's had the surgery, you tend to think, well, they had that really major intervention, then they got better. Therefore, the surgical intervention caused them to get better. But we know there's this logical fallacy called post hoc ergo proctor hoc, a complicated Latin term, which basically says, uh, if it followed something, it was caused by it. And, and we know that that's not necessarily true. Correlation doesn't equal causation. People can get better for a whole host of other reasons apart from having surgery or any other medical treatment, for, for, for example. They can get better because of, of, of a placebo effect. Seeing a doctor in a white coat with a stethoscope around <laughs> their neck can make people convinced that the therapy is going to be effective. And that's very effective uh, in a kind of preferential way for conditions that affect the central nervous system like pain mm -hmm. because the placebo effect can cause the release of bodies in a painkillers endorphins in, in, in the brain for example so placebo effects can be involved it could be the natural history of the disease diseases often get better by themselves yeah. uh, in, in many many cases there's, there's something called regression towards the mean which means that also often Symptoms in a disorder will often start out severe, including pain, and then they'll regress to the mean. They'll actually die down a little bit and move towards the average level of symptoms, which is often not as bad as when they first start. So how do you work out whether it's the surgery that's yeah. causing this or a placebo effect or natural history of the disease or regression towards the mean? Well, one mechanism is to get half the people uh, to have the real surgery and half the people through proper informed consent, you know, you're entering a trial, you may get the real surgery, but you may get this placebo or sham surgery where we do everything the same. You get an anesthetic. It might be a general or it might be a spinal anesthetic. We're going to, if it's an elbow surgery, we're going to make a cut in your elbow. We're going to open up the tissues. We're going to actually visualize the extensor carpi radialis tendon. We're going to check to see if there's damage there. And if there is damage there, we're going to do nothing. We're going to leave it alone and we're going to close <laughs> it up. And then we're going to follow you up. But the people that follow you up won't know whether you've had the real surgery or the fake surgery. And you as the participant and the patient, you won't know either. And we'll follow you up for a year or two years and we'll measure how much pain you've got and what you can do, you know, whether you can bend the arm straight and so on. And basically what happens is that if at the end of the year or the two years, as happens in some cases of, of these placebo-controlled trials, 
everyone gets better or the majority of people actually improve, you just, you know that it's not cutting away the tissue, cutting away the tendon, the so-called critical surgical element that the doctors think is doing doing the job of making the pain better. It's not that because the people that got placebo surgery did just as well. So you're still left not knowing if it's the placebo effect, the disorder regression to, to the mean in terms of symptoms, or it's the natural history of the disease. So, you know, we're gradually establishing a body of evidence that in the case of that kind of finding suggests that we should question the treatment. And it's not just surgical interventions, you know, it's actually far easier to do it with with medications Mm. and have a placebo medication in the control group, which is a kind of sugar pill or, or something similar. So, you know, that's really kind of the gold standard now in terms of evidence gathering it's not without problems yeah. <laughs> but it certainly makes you sit back and go well uh if this isn't going to improve me better than placebo surgery maybe i should be a little bit cautious about about having that surgery yeah and something that really stood out for me when i was reading the book is how new a lot of this research is do you think that people are ready for this type of information? I guess that could be medical professionals or patients. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think they're ready. And look, you know, if you're a doctor or a surgeon, surgeons are doctors and they, they specialise and become surgeons, the vast majority of doctors are so invested in looking after their patients. They are, you, you'll, you'll see you know, horror stories in the paper about doctors who apparently don't have their patients' best interests at heart. The vast majority yeah. of doctors have their patient's best interest at heart, they want the best outcome for them. You know, I've worked with these people for 20 years. Yeah. This is what they want. And, you know, if you've been doing a surgery for 20 years and people seem to be getting better, or you've been giving people a medication for 20 years and people seem to be getting better, and then a study comes out, no matter how well conducted the study, how well controlled it is, you know, how large the sample size, if it contradicts what you've been doing for 20 years, it's really hard to accept. It's hard to accept for for a bunch of reasons. One, it kind of makes you suggest uh, suggest to you that what you've been doing isn't good for your patients. Yeah. That creates cognitive dissonance. You know, there's a real negative emotion. So there's a, a kind of psychological push to say, well, no, I'm going to reject the findings of that study and look to the findings of other perhaps less well conducted trials, observational studies that follow people without a control group, and and take those as veridical. And, uh, you know, can feed into confirmation bias and the evidence of the doctor's own eyes. I see people get up off the surgical operating table. I see people after I've given them this medication and they get better. Yeah. And people get convinced with the evidence of their own eyes. And it's very hard to kind of distance yourself from that and become remote to it and then, you know, look at this study and, and accept that. And, you know... I spoke to, to George Murrell in, in the book, who's a shoulder surgeon who, who did one of these sham surgical studies. And I actually asked him, you know, he does rotator cuff repairs, so repair, repairing torn tendons across the elbow. And his own surgery is being subjected to a, a sham control study where people will get the real or the fake surgery. And I said, George, you know, what are you going to do if, if your daily bread, yeah. the thing you, you've been doing for 20 years, is found to be no more effective than exercise and strengthening, are you going to give it up? 
And, and he just said, Paul, I'd find it really hard to give it up because I'm emotionally wedded to the idea yeah. that sewing tendons together that are torn is the right thing to do. And look, it's, it seems obvious. The tendon's torn, sew it together, for God's sake. <laughs> And that's what we did with Achilles tendons for years, if you had a torn Achilles tendon. And then all of a sudden the evidence started coming in, well, you could actually treat that without surgery. Put the, put the foot into dorsiflexion, take the pressure off the, the tendon and, and immobilise it for a while. And look, I don't review the evidence for that in the book, but you know, there's emerging evidence that, that maybe for some people a non-surgical approach to that, what previously seemed such an obvious thing to do, you're torn your Achilles yeah. tendon, one of the big things in your body, sew it back together well not necessarily and you know the thing that is obvious becomes less obvious when you start interposing the results of these these placebo controlled trials particularly when the dependent measure when the thing that you're measuring is something mediated by the central nervous system like pain as opposed to something more objective like how well a bone is knitting, for example, on an X-ray. We 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 wouldn't do a sham surgical study to see whether, you know, not putting a cast on a broken yeah. arm, <laughs> because you you probably can say that the results there are, are really self self evident in terms of applying a cast. Yeah. I think a lot of books about chronic pain can be written from the lens of a professional, a, a doctor, a medical professional. And in your book, you say that you're not writing this book as a doctor. You are writing this as a journalist. Was that a conscious decision that you went into the book with? Yeah. So, look, I, I, th I thought there was a gap in the literature. And you know, there's a lot of great books out there on chronic pain. Many of them are far more didactic. They're more kind of recipe-based. And people often do want, look, just tell me what to do. Um, yeah. Tell me this, 10 things, and I'll, I'll go and do it, anything to get rid of this pain. The, the problem with that is that the lists aren't one size fits all. They don't work for everybody. And look, as I, as I said, some great books out there um, with, with really useful information. What I thought was lacking, though, was a journalistic approach where where someone had gone out and talked to a, a lot of the top pain researchers, it's not every top pain researcher, I spoke to about 25 of the world's leading pain researchers, and there's plenty others out there who are doing great work as well. But I think what this gives the reader and what it gave me was this just masterclass. I mean, this fascinating insight. I got an hour, sometimes two hours, with these amazing people that have dedicated their lives to relieving pain and distilling that into a yeah. you and it's really gold because now you can go to this book i mean i i think the book's really valuable uh obviously um, but you can now go to that book and say right what what are the top 25 uh, researchers in the world or some of the, some of the top 25 researchers in the world think about this problem and what can i take away that might help me and, and i shouldn't undervalue the stories of the six or seven you know, amazing stories of, of people who suffered pain because their lived experience really contributes to to the messages in this book and they're really helpful and I use some of the messages from these people myself and the way I manage ongoing painful yeah. issues oh what what did Lauren do oh yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. do that <laughs> that looks really useful so you're really getting this this kind of masterclass from these people in a way that I think a book written by a single expert who's had years and years of experience themselves in, in treating people with chronic pain, you don't necessarily get that. 
And mm-hmm. the kind of analogy I think of is, is a bit like philosophy. I mean, I studied philosophy and research philosophy for many years. Now, often when people look for philosophical tidbits that, that uh, they think are useful to them, they'll sample all these philosophers. They might look at Schopenhauer and they might look at Plato or Aristotle or, or, or modern, more modern philosophers like William James or contemporary philosophers like Foucault. And everyone will find something different in that. And they will take things that will act as a kind of framework, philosophical framework to support their own, own lives. And that's how I kind of regard the book. I mean, these are pain sufferers and pain experts telling us their stories. You go through that and, you know, I talk about being a bowerbird in, in the last chapter. Bowerbird collects blue things. You know, maybe we should be collecting pain things to feather our nests. Yeah. And everyone will take something different. Yeah. I'll, I'll, look, Vanya Karin's work for me, that, that struck a chord. I'm going to use yeah. that as my, my basis. So, yeah, I think the journalistic, journalistic approach got a kind of panoply of, of views, a really big sample, and distilled them through storytelling telling in a way that could provide a kind of, a bit like a smorgasbord for people, to, to pick from what they will. And hopefully it's also an entertaining and, and not just an informative read as well. Yeah. It's a bit more of a personal question, but when did you decide to make the transition from being and like working in emergency medicine to being a journalist. I just find that so intriguing. Yeah, well, it was, a, you know, I did spend 20 years working as a doctor. Yeah. And look, I, mean, I think the work was extremely important, but it did become formulaic and, and repetitive. And, you know, I just felt that I needed some more stimulation in different intellectual areas, and which is when I pursued academic bioethics and started researching uh, end-of-life issues in, in, uh, in medical care then did a PhD that looked at the ethical issues surrounding the treatment of depression, comparing drug-based and psycho- psychotherapeutic-based approaches from, from an ethical lens. Did write a, a book about that called The Ethical Treatment of Depression uh, some years back. And, and then did, did a postdoc. I was getting really interested in the postdoc looked at, uh, well, done at Monash University, looked at the ethical significance of the advertising of prescription pharmaceuticals, which can happen in uh, the United States yeah. doesn't happen in Australia, but happens in the United States where there's direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs. And I really looked at the subconscious persuasive techniques with my research team uh, that are used in that kind of advertising and, and whether that might undermine the autonomy, uh, yeah. the self nature with which people choose to take medications. And, you know, we found that, you know, the positive imagery and all the positive music and so on was actually shifting people's attitudes and beliefs about the advertised drug to make them think it was more effective and safer. So clearly there was this whole, you know, new world out there in in academia and philosophy. And then, look, I mean, that that become, became a little bit formulaic after a while, you know, right autonomy. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I'm going to try and do some journalism. And, and it's been, a you know, another part of the journey to just, interview and write about fascinating people so it's been a a huge privilege to be able to do that yeah and it's clear that you're really passionate about it as well so it's amazing my final question because I'm conscious that I've already gone over time with what I said that I would take from you today my final question is what do you hope that people will get out of reading why does it still hurt well the big one is hope and you know when you're in the dark place of chronic pain you just think that it's never going to get better and, you know, the stories of the people uh, uh, that, that have had pain in the book and the stories of the, of the researchers all show 
but that isn't necessarily the case uh, for many people even with people who've had lifelong pain they've able, been able to turn it around through non-drug and non-surgical approaches and you know i'm going to mention targeted psychotherapy uh, including uh, education about central sensitization therapies like the one that Tor Wager and colleagues have developed called pain reprocessing therapy, I think is a really important one, uh, as well as education about how, how movement and, and exercise in a graded way and in a way that doesn't flare up existing uh, painful anatomical parts, if you will, uh, is also so important. So hope is the big one. Yeah. I think the second thing is that an understanding of central sensitization is something that is potentially therapeutic simply having that knowledge can actually make some people better understanding that the pain is coming from a sensitized nervous system and not necessarily pathology in in my knee for example can turn off the threat that i attach to sensations coming from the knee so the knowledge can be therapeutic in and of itself but i think the third thing i'd say is that i think there's an ethical dimension to this and what i would hope is that patients and their health practitioners discuss the possibility in the setting of treatments for for chronic pain that central sensitization and maladaptive neuroplasticity may be contributing to that pain. Clearly, you've got to go through the screening and diagnostic tests to ensure that there's no structural problem. But, you know, if there is a component of central sensitization contributing, what should we do about it? Uh, What should we do that is a treatment that's directly targeting that sensitized nervous system Uh, and not necessarily targeting that anatomical part that hurts. The pain is real. It's 100% real. But when you've got central sensitization, it may not mean what you think it does. It may not mean that where the pain is, is coming from is is still damaged yeah i certainly got a lot from your book so thank you so much and thank you for chatting with me today it's been a real real pleasure uh, jess so, so thanks so much for, for having me on the show if you would like to get your hands on a copy of why does it still hurt you can find it online or in stores i did a quick google and it looks like scorpio books here in christchurch has a couple of copies left and you can always check out your local library as well i think about six people have the ebook on hold at the Auckland Library at the moment, but I'm sure the wait isn't too long when more copies become available. I'm sure it was obvious throughout the interview, but I did really enjoy reading this book. It was a nice change from the academic literature that I've been reading for my health sciences degree. Honestly, it just felt like a breath of fresh air. I also, obviously, really enjoyed hearing from the different patient perspectives, mainly because a lot of them were discussing chronic pain from an injury perspective which isn't something that I've learnt very much about both here on the podcast but also in my real life. So yeah I give the book a big ol' five stars. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Chronic. As always, it's a pleasure to have you here and an honour to be in your ears. If you enjoyed this episode, I reckon you would enjoy the monthly newsletter as well. You can find a link to subscribe to that in the show notes or just search That's So Chronic on Substack. If you have something that you think would be cool to chat about in one of these That So episodes, feel free to send me an email. It's just hello at jessbryan.com. And make sure you've pressed follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you listen so you never miss an episode. I hope you're having a lovely week and I'll see you next time. Bye.